assembled here <coughs> in full strength and in all the joy of this superb occasion, I first want to renew my thanks to all who have made it possible, to Jack and his committee, to each one of you, to the untold miles of travel that you've all made request to inspire me, to fill me with the warmth of your hospitality, to be with each other. I am grateful to the governor of this state, the mayor of this town, for their recognition that we are again not only a member but citizens of the world, we once more belong, so these friends have said. I'm deeply grateful to this hotel and the owners of it, who have housed us effectively so superbly. Could you see that apartment on man? You'd wonder how the hell anybody could stay sober in Learned at once what they're about. 
what kind of an outfit he really has landed in. By what principles his group and a as a whole are governed. But as I say, the Dickens with all that. I just like to spin some yarns, and they will be a series of yarns which cluster around the preparation of the good old book Alcoholic Knox. Some people reading the book now, they say, well, this is the AA Bible. And when I hear that, it always makes me shudder. Because the guys who put it together weren't a damn bit biblical. <laughs> I think sometimes Chanel and Trump have an idea that these old timers went around with the almost visible halos and long gowns and they were full of sweetness and light. Oh boy, how inspired they were. Oh, yeah. But wait till I tell you. I suppose the book yarn really started in the living room of uh, Dr. Annie Smith. As you know, I landed there in the summer of 35, a little group called Hall. I helped Smithy briefly with it, and he went on to found the first AA group in the world. And with all new groups, it was nearly all failure. But now and then, Somebody saw the light, and there was progress. Tampered, I got back to New York, a little more experience, the group started there. And by the time we got around to 1937, the thing had leaked a little over into Cleveland, and it began to move south in New York. But it was still, we thought in those years, a flying blind. A flickering candle indeed that might at any moment be snuffed out. So on this late fall afternoon in 1937, Smithy and I were talking together in his living room and sitting there by the gas log. And we began to count notes. How many people had stayed dry in Akron, in New York, Maybe a few in sleep. How many stayed dry and for how long? And when we added up that score, sure, it was a handful. I don't know, 35, 40 maybe. But enough time had elapsed on enough really fatal cases of alcoholism so that when we grasped the import of these small statistics, Bob and I saw for the first time that this thing was going to succeed, that God in his providence and mercy had thrown a new light into the dark caves where we and our kind had been and were still by the million dwellers. I never can forget the elation and ecstasy that seized us both. And then we fell happily talking. 
and reflected. We reflected that, well, a couple of score of them, but it had taken three long years. There had been a immense amount of failure, but a long time had been taken just to sober up this handful. How could this handful carry its message to all those who still didn't know? Not all the drunks in the world could come to Akron or to New York. How could we transmit our message to them? By what means? Maybe we thought we could go to the old timers in each group, which then meant nearly everybody. Find the sum of money, somebody else's money, of course, and say to them, well, now take a sabbatical year off your job, if you have any, and you go to Keokuk and to Omaha and to Chicago and to San Francisco and to Los Angeles and wherever it may be, and you give this thing a year and get a group started. It had already got evident by then, for we were just about to be moved out of the city hospital in Akron to make room for people with broken legs and ailing livers, that the hospitals were not too happy with us. We tried to run their business perhaps too much, and besides, drunks were apt to be noisy in the night, and there were other inconveniences, which were all tremendous. So it was obvious that uh, drunks being such on that lovely creature, we would have to have a great chain of hospitals. And as that dream burst upon me, it sounded good, because you see, I've been down in Wall Street in the promotion business, and I remember the great sums of money that were made as, as soon as people got this chain idea, you know, the chain drugstores, the chain grocery stores, the chain dry, dry goods stores. Why not chain drug tanks and let us make the dog? So we needed some missionaries, guys. We needed a chain of drum tanks. That got very clear. All clear to me. Bob is a conservative type of Yankee. I don't think he was quite so fast for those items. I was very insistent. It would take a pile of dough to finance all this, but after all, with this brand new light shining in our dark world, we just squirted in the eyes of rich guys and made up with the dough. <laughs> Besides, we reflected, uh, <laughs> we'd have to get some kind of literature. Up to this moment, not a syllable of uh, this program, so far as I know, was in writing. And it was a kind of a word-of-mouth deal. You were with variations according to each man's or woman's fancy. Well, in a gentle way, we said, well, the booze has got you down, boys, and you got an allergy in an obsession, and you're hopeless. If you are, you better get honest with yourself. Take stock. You ought to talk this out to somebody. Kind of a confessional, you know. And you ought to make restitution for the harm that did. You ought to make amends and all that kind of business. Well, you pray the best you could, according to your life and family. And that was the sum of the word of mouth program up to that time. 
far as I say, variations on that were already occurring. How could we unify this thing? Could we, out of our experience, get certain principles, describe certain methods that had done the trick for us? Yes, obviously. If this movement was to propagate, it had to have a literature so its message could not be garbled, either by the drunks or by the general public. So, Bob and I reflected that late afternoon in 1937. Missionaries, chain of drunk tanks, and a book. Well, even by then, he and I had begun to learn that we were not the government of Alcoholics Anonymous. He, I guess more than I, already realized that the conscience of the group the opinion of the group, when it was an informed opinion and in the group's interest could be better than our own. We'd better consult, folks. Well, there was dear old, uh, dear old non-alcoholic, his wife, T. Henry Williams, there in Akron. They'd let us meet in their house after we got out of the Smith Power and got into theirs. And he was great friends of ours. So we called meeting of the Akron group, that is to say, those who have been sober any great length of time, I think for this particular meeting we scraped up about 18. And that evening, Bob and I told them that we were in within sight of success, that we thought this thing might go on and on and on that a new light, indeed, was shining in our dark world. But how could this light be reflected and transmitted without being distorted and dark? And at this point, they turned the meeting over to me, and being a salesman, I set right to work on them drunk tanks, and subsidies for the missionaries, I was pretty poor then, and we touched on the book. And the group conscience consisted of 18 men, good and true. And the good and true men, you could see right away, were damn skeptical about it all. Almost with one voice, they called, let's keep it simple. This is going to bring money into this thing. This is going to create a professional class. We'll all be ruined. Well, I counted, that's a very good argument. Lots of what you say. But even within gunshot of this very house, alcoholics are dying like flies. And if this thing doesn't move any faster than it has in the, next, in the last three years, it may be another ten before it gets to the outskirts of Akron. How in God's name are we going to carry this message to others? We've got to take some kind of chance. We can't keep it so simple it becomes an anarchy and get complicated. We can't keep it so simple it won't complicate itself. And we got to have a lot of money to do these things. So exerting myself to the utmost, which was considerable in those days, 
We finally got a vote in that little meeting, and it was a mighty close vote. By just a majority of maybe two or three, the meeting said with some reluctance, well, Bill, if we need a lot of dough, you better go back to New York, where there's plenty of it, and you raise it. <laughs> well, boy, that was the word I've been waiting for. So I scrammed back to the great city, and I began to approach some people of means and describe this tremendous thing that had happened. And it didn't seem so tremendous as the people of means at all. They said, what, 35 or 40 drunk, sobered up. They have sobered them up before now, you know. And besides, Mr. Wilson, don't you think it's kind of sweeping up the shavings? I mean, uh, I mean, wouldn't uh, something for the Red Cross be better? <laughs> In other words, with all of my most ideal solicitation, I got one hell of a freeze from the gentleman away. Well, I began to get blue. And when I began to get blue, uh, my stomach kicked up as well as other things. And I was laying in bed one night with an imaginary ulcer attack. Used to have them all the time. <laughs> I had one to find a 12 step for it. <laughs> and I said, my God, uh, we're starving to death here at Clinton Street. By this time, the house was full of drunk. They were eating us out of house and home. In those days, we never believed in charging anything for uh, anybody for anything. So Lois was earning the money. I was being a missionary in the drunk for eating meals. <laughs> can't go on. We got to have them drunk tanks, we got to have them missionaries, and how we got to have them missionaries, and we got to have a book. That's for sure. Well, the next morning, I crawled into my clothes, and I saw my brother-in-law. He's a doctor, and he is about the last person me when the ship way, way down. The only one, save, of course, dear Lord. Well, I said, I'm going to see Leonard. So I went up to see my brother-in-law, Leonard. He pried out a little time between the patients coming in up there. And I started my awful bellyache about these rich guys who wouldn't give us any dough for this great and glorious enterprise. So well on its way. And it seems to me that somehow he was tied up with the Rockefeller family in their charity. And if you want to, we'll call up the Rockefeller offices and see if there is such a man, and if there is, is he alive, and will he see us? Would you like me to do that? Well, I haven't tried the Rockefeller office, so I said, well, sure, give him a ring. <laughs> On what slender threads our destiny sometimes hangs. Remember, my brother-in-law said, I knew a girl, and I think she had enough. <laughs> so the call was made. Instantly there came out of the other end of the wire the voice of dear Willard Richards, one of the loveliest, Christian gentleman that I have ever known. And the moment he recognized my brother-in-law, he 
said, why, Lord, he said, where have you been all these years? Well, my brother-in-law, unlike me, is a man of very few words, so he quickly said to dear old Uncle Weller that uh, he had a brother-in-law who was apparently having some success sobering up drunks. Could uh, the two of us come over there and see him? Why, certainly, said Bill Willard, uh, come right over. So we go over to Rockefeller Plaza, we go up that elevator, 54 flights, 56, I guess it is, and we walk plump into Mr. Rockefeller's personal offices, asked to see Mr. Richards. And here is this lovely, benign old gentleman who nevertheless had a kind of shrewd twinkle in his eyes. So I sat down and told him about our exciting discovery. The terrific cure for alcoholics that had just hit the world. How it worked. What we had done about it. And boy, this was the first receptive man with money or access to money. Remember, we were in Mr. Rockefeller's personal office at this point. And by now, too, we had learned that this was Mr. Rockefeller's closest personal friend, perhaps. So he said, why, yes, said I. Much interested. Would you like to have lunch with me, Mr. Wilson? Well, now you know for a rising promoter, that sounds pretty good. You're going to have lunch with best friends of uh, John Dean. Things were looking up. My ultra attack disappeared. <laughs> so I had lunch with the old gentleman, and we go over the thing again, and boy, he's so warm and kind and friendly. Right? Close the lunch, he said, well, now, Mr. Wilson, or Bill, if I can call you that, uh, said, wouldn't you like to have a larger meeting with uh, some of my friends? Uh, there's Frank Amos, he's in the advertising business, but he was on a committee that recommended Mr. Rockefeller uh, drop the uh, prohibition business. And there's Leroy Chipman, he looks at Mr. Rockefeller's real estate, and there's Mr. God, he's chairman of the board up at the Riverside Church, and he said a number of people like that, I, I believe they'd like to hear this story. So a meeting was arranged, and it fell upon a winter's night, late 1937. And the meeting was at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. We called in post haste. A couple of guards, Macron, Smith included, of course, heading the protection. I came in with the New York contingent, four or five. And to our astonishment, we were ushered into Mr. Rockefeller's personal board room, right next to our office, right next to his office. And I thought to myself, well, now this place is really getting hot. And indeed, I felt very much warm when I was told by Mr. Richardson that I was sitting in a chair just vacated by Mr. Rockefeller. I said, well, now we really are getting close to the bankroll. <laughs> Old Doc Silkworth was there that night, too. And he 
testifying what he has seen happen to these new friends of ours. And each drunk, thinking of nothing better to say, well, each of us told our stories, drinking and the recovery. And these folks listened. They seemed very definitely impressed. So I could see that the moment for the big touch was coming. So I gingerly brought up the subject of the drunk tanks, the subsidized missionaries, and this question of a book or literature. Well, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. But it didn't look like a wonder to me when Mr. Scott, head of a large engineering firm and chairman of the Riverside Church, uh, looked at us and said, but gentlemen, said up to this point, this has been the work of goodwill only. No plans, no properties, no paid people, just one carrying the good news to the next. Isn't that true? And may it not be that that is where the great power of this society lies. Now, if we subsidize it, might it not alter its whole, whole character? We want to do all we can. We're gathered for that. But would it be one? Well, then the salesmen all gave Mr. Scott the rush. And we said, why, Mr. Scott, there are only 40 of us. It's taken three years. Why, millions, Mr. Scott, will rot before this thing ever gets told unless we have money and lots of it. And we made out our case at last with these gentlemen for the missionaries, the drunk tanks, the vote. So one of them volunteered to investigate us, very carefully. And since poor old Dr. Bob was harder up than I was, and since the first group and the typical community situation was in Akron, we directed their attention out there. And Frank Amos, still a trustee in the foundation, at his own expense, got on a train, went out to Akron, made all sorts of preliminary inquiries around town about Dr. Bob. All the reports were good except that he was a drunk and recently got over. He visited the little meeting out there. He went to the Smith's house. And he came back with what he thought was a very modest project. And he recommended to these friends of ours that, uh, well, we should have a at least uh, just a token amount of money at first, say $50,000, something like that. That would clear off mortgage on Smith place. It would uh, get us a little rehabilitation place. We could put Dr. Smith in charge. Uh, we could subsidize a few of these people uh, briefly until we got some more money. Or we could, uh, you know, it would start the chain of hospitals. We'd have a few missionaries. We could get busy on the book. Oh, for mere 50000 bucks. Well, considering the kind of money we were backed up against, that did sound a little small, but, you know, one thing leads to another. 
It sounded real good. We were, we were real glad. Mr. Willard Richardson, our original contact, then took that report into John Day. Junior, as everybody called him. And I think heard what went on in there. Mr. Rockefeller read the report, called Willard Richardson back, and he said, somehow I am strangely stirred by all this. This interests me immensely. And then looking at his friend Willard, he said, but isn't money going to spoil this thing? I'm terribly afraid that it was. And yet I'm so strangely stirred by it. Then came another turning point in our destiny. When that man whose business is giving away money said to Willard Richardson, no, he said, I won't be the one to spoil this by, with money. You say these two men who are heading it are a little strapped. I'll put $5,000 in the Riverside Church Treasury. You folks can form yourselves into a committee and draw on it as you like. But please don't ask me for any more. But I want to hear what goes on. Well, the 50000 and then shrunk to five. We raised the mortgage on Smithy's house for about three grand. That left two, and Smithy and I commenced chawing on that two. Well, that was a long way from the strings of the drunk tanks, books, and What in thunder would we do? Well, we had more meetings with our newfound friends. Amos, Richardson, Scott, Chipman, and those fellows who stuck with us to this day, some of them now being gone. And in spite of Mr. Rockefeller's advice, we again convinced these folks that this thing needed a lot of money. What could you do without it? So, one of them proposed, well, why don't we form a foundation, something like the Rockefeller Foundation? Well, I said, I hope it'll be like that with respect to mine. And then one of them got a free lawyer from Ely Hill Roots firm who was interested in the thing. And we are asked him to draw an agreement of trust, a charter for something to be called the Alcoholic Foundation. Why we picked that one, I don't know. I don't know whether the foundation was alcoholic. It was the Alcoholic Foundation, not the Alcoholic Foundation. No. And the lawyer was very much confused because in the meeting in which we formed the foundation, we made it very plain that uh, we drunks did not wish to be in the majority. We felt that there should be non-alcoholics on the board, and they ought to be in a majority of one. Well, indeed, said the lawyer, what is the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic? And one of our smart drunks said, well, that's sense. A non-alcoholic is a guy who can drink, and an alcoholic is a guy who can't drink. 
said the law, you know, how do we state that legally? I wouldn't know. <laughs> so at length, we had a foundation and a board, which I think then was of about seven, consisting of four of these new friends, including my brother-in-law, Mr. Richardson, Chipman Amos, and some of us drunk. I think Smithy went on the board, but I kind of coyly stayed off it, thinking, well, it would be more convenient later on. So we have this wonderful new foundation. These friends, unlike Mr. Rockefeller, were told that we needed a lot of dough. And so our salesmen around New York started to solicit, solicit the money. Again, from the very rich. And we had a list of them, and we had credentials and letters from friends of Mr. John D. Rockefeller. How could you miss? I asked you, salesmen. The foundation has been formed in the spring of 1938, and all summer we solicited the rich. Well, they were either in Florida, or they preferred the Red Cross, or some of them thought the drunks were disgusting. And we didn't get one damn cent in the whole summer of 1938, praise God. Well, meantime, we began to hold trustee meetings, and they were commiseration sessions on getting no dough. What with the mortgage and what with Smithy and me eating away at it, the five grand had about gone up the flu, and we were all stony broke again. Smithy couldn't get his practice back either because he was a surgeon, and nobody liked to be carved up by an alcoholic surgeon, even if he was three years so things were tough all around, no fool. <laughs> well, what would we do? So one day, probably in August 1938, I produced at a foundation meeting <coughs> a couple of chapters of a proposed book in Ross and in Mimeograph. As a matter of fact, we've been using chapters of this proposed book along with some recommendations of a couple doctors down at John Hopkins to try to put the bite on the wreck. And we still have these two book chapters kicking around. And so Frank Amos said, well, now I know the religious editor down there at Hopkins, old friend of mine, Gene Axman. He said, why don't you take these two book chapters, your story and the introduction to the book, down there and show them to Gene see what he thinks about. So I took the chapters down. To my great surprise, Gene, who has since become a great friend of ours, looked at the chapters and said, why? He said, Mr. Wilson, he said, could you write a whole book like this? Oh, I said, oh. <laughs> well, there was more talk about it. Uh, I guess he went in and showed it to Mr. Canfield, the big boss. Now the meeting was had, and the upshot was that Harper's intimated that they would pay me, as the budding author, $1,500 in advance royalties, bringing enough money in to enable me to finish the book. Well, I felt awful good, you know, about that. It made me feel like I was an author, a comer, maybe. I felt real good about it, but after a while, not so good. 
because I began to reason, and so did the other boy, well, if this guy Wilson eats up to 1500 bucks while he's doing this book, after the book gets out, it'll take a long time to catch up, and if this thing gets some publicity, what are we going to do with the inquiry? And after all, what's a lousy 10% royalty anyway? Well, the 1500 still look pretty big to me. Then we thought, too, now here's a fine publisher like Harper's, but if this book, if and when done, should prove to be the main textbook for AA, why would we want our main means of propagation in the hands of somebody else? Shouldn't we control it? Well, at that point, the book project really began to get hot. It began to take off. Why? We said what we ought to do is to form a book company a publishing company, corporation. We could call it, let us say, Works Publishing Company, this being the first of a great many works, you see. And we could sell stock certificates to all the drums, get some money coming in, support the author and the guy who collected the money and the gal who would help me on the book while this was going on. Well, we took this idea of the next trustees meeting and they all shook their heads, and they went out and made some more inquiries, and we had another trustees meeting, and they'd gone to some publisher friends, and the publisher said, well, these authors, they all got the crazy idea that they can uh, publish their own books, but it ain't so. We don't believe it. Well, then we had kind of an alcoholic rebellion. We said to our friends, well, after all, you didn't produce any dough. Uh, we think we'll try this on separate from the foundation. So I had a guy helping me on this thing who had red hair and ten times my energy and some promoter he was. He said, Bill, this is simple. Come on with me. We walk into a stationery store, we buy a pad of blank stock certificates, we write across the top of them, worst publishing company, power value, $25. So we take a pad of these stock certificates <laughs> Because we didn't bother to incorporate it, that didn't happen for several years. <laughs> we took this pad of stock certificates to the next AA meeting, where you shouldn't mix money with spirituality at home. And we said to the drunks, why look, this thing is going to be a thing. Parker, if you'll take a third of this thing for services rendered, I, the author, I'll take a third for services rendered, and you can have a third of these stock certificates, part 25, if you'll just start paying up on your stock. If you only want one share, it's only $5 a month for five months, see? And the drunk all gave us this stony look. <laughs> what the hell? You mean to say you're asking us to buy stock in a book that you ain't written yet? Why, sure, we said. If Harper's will put money in this thing, why shouldn't you? Harper says it's going to be a, a good book. But the drunk still gave us the stony stare. No, so. Well, we had to think up some more arguments. So we said, well, uh, we've been looking about the printing cost of the books, boys. We get a book here, you know, 400, 450 pages, it ought to sell for about 350. 
Now, back in those days, uh, we found on inquiry from printers that that 350 book could be printed for 35 cents, making a thousand percent profit. Of course, we didn't mention the other expenses, just print costs. So, boy, just think of it. When these books move out in Carlo's lot, we're printing them for 35 cents and we're selling them direct mail. 350. How can you lose? The drunk still gave it stone. No, stone. Well, we figured we had to have a better argument than that. Harper said it was a good book. You we could print them for 35 cents and sell them for 350. But how are we going to convince the drunk that we could move Carlo's lots? Millions of dollars. So we get the idea we'll go up to the reader's digest. And we got an appointment with Mr. Kenneth Payne, the managing editor up there. Gee, I never forget the day we got off the train up to Pleasantville and went over to his office, ushered in. We excitedly told him the story of this wonderful budding society. We dwelled upon the friendship of Mr. Rockefeller and Harry Emerson Fosdick. You know, we were traveling in good company, Mr. Payne. And uh, the society, by the way, was about to publish a textbook then in process of being written. And we were wondering, Mr. Payne, uh, if this wouldn't be a matter of tremendous interest to the Reader's Digest. Having in mind, of course, that the Reader's Digest had a circulation of 12 million readers. And if we could only get a free ad of their common book in the Reader's Digest, we really would move some, you see. Well, Mr. Payne said this sounds extremely interesting. I'm, I, I like this idea. Why? I think it will be an absolutely ideal, <laughs> ideal piece for the diet. Well, how soon do you think this new book will be out, Mr. Wilson? Well, I think we've got a couple chapters written, and <laughs> said uh, if we can get right at it, Mr. Payne, uh, you know, uh, probably uh, this being, let us say, October, we ought to get this out by next April, next May. Why, Mr. Payne said, I, I'm, I'm sure the Digest would like a thing like this, Mr. Wilson. He said, I'll take it up to the editorial board. And he said, uh, when the time is right and you get all ready to shoot, come on up and we'll put a special feature writer on this thing and we'll tell all about your style. And then my promoter's friend said, but Mr. Payne, will you mention a new book in the piece? Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Payne mentioned the new book. That's all we need. Then we went back to drugs and said, now look, boys, there are positively millions in it. How can you make it? Harper says it's going to be a good book. We buy them for 35 cents from the printer. We sell them for 350. The Reader's Digest is going to give us a free ad and a piece, and boys, they'll move out by the carload. How can you make it? And after all, we only need four or 5,000 bucks. So then we began to sell the shares of work publishing, not yet incorporated, far value, $25. $5 a month to four people. Some people could buy as many as one guy bought 10 shares. We sold a few shares to non-alcoholics. And my promoter friend, who was to get a third interest, was a very important man in this transaction because he went out and kept collecting the money from the drunk. 
so that little Ruthie Hunt and I could keep working on the book, and so Lois would have some groceries, although she was still working in that department store. <laughs> so the preparation started. And some more chapters were done, and we went into AA meetings in New York with these chapters in the rough. Well, it wasn't like chicken in the rough. The boys didn't eat those chapters up at all. I suddenly discovered that I was in a terrific whirlpool of life. I was just the umpire. And finally had to stipulate, well, boys, uh, over here you got the holy rollers who say we need all the good old-fashioned stuff in the book, and over here you tell me we got to have a psychological book, and that never cured anybody, and they didn't do much with drugs in the mission. So I guess you'll have to leave me just to be the umpire. I'll scribble out some rocks here and show them to you, and let's get the comments then. So we fought, bled, and died our way through one chapter after another. We sent them out to Akron, and they were peddled around, and there were terrific hassles about what to do in this book and whatnot. Meanwhile, we set drunks to writing their stories or having newspaper people that we had to write stories for them to go on the back. A lot of these drunks are scared to death of being God, but let's take God out of his fire. Such were the arguments we had. Well, out of that terrific asshole about the 12 steps, there did come a tenth strike. That argument caused the introduction of a phrase which has been a lifesaver by thousands. It was certainly none of my doing. I was on the pious side then, you see, still suffering from this big hot flash of mine. The idea of God as you understand him came out of that perfectly ferocious argument. And we put that in the Well, little by little, the thing ground on, and little by little, the drunks put in the money, and we kept an office open over in Newark, which was the office of a defunct business that I've tried to establish my friend in. The money ran low at times, though, and little Ruthie Hot worked for no pay. We gave us plenty of stock in the works publishing, of course. You know, all you had to do was tear it off the pad, five twenty-five, and have a week's salary here. <laughs> so we got around to about January 1939. Somebody said, well, and we better test this thing out, and we better kind of make a pre-publication copy, a monolithic or mimeographed copy of this text and a few of these stories that it's come in. Try it out, you know, on the preacher, on the doctor, Catholic Committee on Publications, psychiatrists, policemen, fishwives, housewives, drunks, everybody. Just to see if we got anything that goes against the grain any place. So at considerably fast, we got this pre-publication copy made, and... We peddled it around, and the comments came back. Some of it very helpful. It went, among other places, to the Catholic Committee on Publications in New York. And at that time, we had only one Catholic member to take it there, and he just got out of the asylum and hadn't had anything to do with, publish, uh, with uh, preparing the book. And to our great surprise, it's a promising people something to lay on. So the book had passed months. 
And the stories came in, and somehow he got them out of it. Somehow we got the galley together. We got up to the printing contract. Well, meanwhile, the drunks had been kind of slow on those subscription payments. The thing a little further on, I was able to go up to Charlie Town, where old Doc Silkworth held on. Charlie believed in us mightily. So we had put the slug on Charlie for 2,500 bucks. Charlie didn't want any stock. He wanted a promissory note. On the book, not yet written. So we tapped Charlie for 2,500, which we rooted around through the Alcoholic Foundation so it could be taxed, you understand? So also, we had grown in, supporting three of us in an office to do this job, in these nine months, upwards of $6,000, and the money the till was getting very low. Well, we still had to get it printed. So we go up to Cornwall Press, the largest printer in the world, where we had made previous inquiry, and we asked about printing, and... Uh, Oh, yes, they'd be very glad to do it, and uh, how many books would we like? Well, we said that's very hard to estimate. Of course, our membership is very small at the present time. We wouldn't sell many of the membership, but after all, the Reader's Digest is going to print a plug about it. The 12 million readers, this book should go out in Carlos, Mr. Printer. And Mr. Printer was none other than dear old Mr. Black one of our great friends. And Mr. Blackwell said, well, boys, uh, how much of a down payment are going to make? How many books would you like? I said, well, we said we'll be conservative. We'll, we'll, let's put 5,000 of them just to start. And Mr. Blackwell said, well, what's he going to use for money? Well, we said, well, we won't need much. I imagine a few hundred dollars on account. It'd be all right with you, Mr. Blackwell. I told you, after all, we're traveling very good company. You know, all the friends, Mr. Rockefellers and all that. So Blackwell started printing the 5,000 books. The plates were made and the galleys were read. Gee, all of a sudden we thought of the Raiders Digest. So we go up to the Raiders Digest. We walk in on Mr. Kenneth Payne, and we said, Mr. Payne, we're all ready to shoot. And Mr. Payne said, shoot what? <laughs> oh, yes, he said, I remember you, Mr. Pontus and Mr. Wilson. You were the gentleman up here last fall. He said, I told you that I thought the Reader's Digest would be interested in this new work and in this book. But he said, right after you were here, I consulted our editorial board, and to my great surprise, they didn't like the idea at all, and I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Boy, we had the drunks with 4,500 bucks in it. Charlie Towns hooked for 2,500 bucks. On the cuff with the printer. Maybe $500 left in the bank. What in the deuce would we do? Well, this fellow Morgan Ryan, a good-looking Irishman that had taken the book uh, the Catholic Committee on Publication, had been in earlier time a good ad man. He said, I know Gabriel here. And Gabriel here is putting on these three-minute uh, hot plug uh, programs on the radio. He said, I'll get an interview with Gabriel here. 
Maybe he'll interview me on the radio about all this. So our spirits rose once again. And then all of a sudden, we had a big chill. We thought, well, supposing this Irishman got, got drunk before he had interviewed So we went over to see her, and lo and behold, he would interview us. And then we got still more scared. So we rented a room in the downtown athletic club, and we put Ryan in there with the day and night guard for 10 days. Anonymous 
And we were absolutely and utterly stony broke. The sheriff then moved in on the office. Poor old Mr. Blackwell wondered what to do for money and felt like taking the book over. And at that very opportune moment, the house in which Lois and I lived where it was foreclosed, and we and our furniture were set out in the street. And that was the date of the book Alcoholics Anonymous in the summer of 1939, and the state of grace that the Wilsons were in. Moreover, a great cry went up from the drunks, what about our $4,500? And Charlie, uh, who was pretty well off, was even a little uneasy about that note for $2,500. What would we do? What would we do? Well, we put our goods into storage on cost. Couldn't even pay the drayman. And AA lent us a summer camp. Another AA lent us a car. The folks around New York began to pass the hat for groceries for the Wilsons, for which they supplied us $50 a month. So we had a lot of discontented stockholders. 50 bucks a month, a summer camp and an automobile, with which to revive the falling fortunes of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We began to shop around from one magazine to another. Would they give us some publicity? Nobody bid. And it looked like the whole dump was going to be foreclosed. Book, office, Wilson's, everything. When one of the boys in New York, who happened to be a little bit prosperous at the time, and who had a fashionable clothing business on Fifth Avenue, which we learned was mostly on mortgage, having drunk nearly all of it up, one of those guys, Bert Kalish, stayed. I went to Bert one day and I said, Bert, there is a promise of an article in Liberty Magazine. I just got it today. But it won't come out until next summer. Uh, next September, it's going to be called Alcoholics and God. It'll be printed by Liberty Magazine, Fulton Editor, the, uh, the, 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 for Fulton Housler, the then editor. And first, when that piece is printed, why, these books will go out in Carlos' life. We need a thousand dollars real bad to get us through the top. Well, first thing, you're, you're sure that article's going to be printed, aren't you? Oh, yes, that's fine. Well, he said, okay. He said, I haven't got the dough, but he said, this man down in Baltimore, Mr. Cochran, he's connected with the wet and dry forces. Well, I said, first this wet and dry, I guess. First said, you ain't going to be fussy where you get this stuff. <laughs> He's a customer of mine. He buys his pants in here. <laughs> Let me call him up. So first gets on long distance phone with Mr. Cochran, Baltimore, very wealthy man. And he said, Mr. Cochran, he says, time to time, did I mention this alcoholic fellowship to which I belong? Mr. Cochran said, yes, Taylor? Well, uh, Bert said, Mr. Cochran, our fellowship has just come out with a magnificent new textbook, Sure Cure for Alcoholism. Mr. Cochran, it's something that we think that every public library in America should have. And Mr. Cochran, the retail price is above $2.50, but he's Mr. Cochran, if you just buy a couple of thousand of those books and put them in the large library, uh, of course, we would sell for that purpose at a considerable discount. 
Well, Mr. Conklin said he didn't think he'd uh, care to do that. And then uh, Bird said, well, Mr. Conklin, uh, some publicity has come out about, will come out next fall about this new book, Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, in the meantime, the books are moving rather slow. And we need, uh, say, a thousand dollars to tide us over. And uh, would you loan the Works Publishing Company a thousand dollars? Well, said Mr. Cochran, what does this balance sheet look like? This Works Publishing Company. <laughs> and after he learned what the Works Publishing looked like, Mr. Cochran said, "No thanks." So then Bert said, "Well, now, Mr. Cochran, you know me." Would you loan the money to me on the credit of my business? Why, certainly, Mr. Cochran said, send down your note, Mr. Taylor. So Bird hopped the business that a year or two later was to go broke anyway. He saved the book alcoholic anonymous, turned the thousand dollars over to us. We lasted till the Liberty article came in. A thousand inquiries, eight hundred inquiries came in as a result of that. We moved a few books. We barely squeaked through the year 1929, but in all this period, we'd heard nothing from John D. Rockefeller. Meanwhile, there had been foundation meeting after foundation meeting. Too bad we were having such a hard time, but no dough. When all of a sudden, in high about February 1940, Mr. Richardson came to a trustees meeting and he said, I have great news. Mr. Rockefeller, who we hadn't heard from since 1937, we were told had been watching all the time with immense interest. Moreover, Mr. Rockefeller would like to give this fellowship a dinner to which he would invite his friends to see the beginning of this new and promising style. Then Mr. Richardson produced the invitation list. And oh, here was the president of the Chase Bank and Wendell Wilkie and uh, all kinds of very prominent people, many of them extremely rich. I mean, a quick look at the list, uh, I figured it would add up to a couple of billion dollars. So we thought maybe now I'd laugh, you know, and there would be some money inside. So the dinner came. And we got Harry Emerson Fosdick, who had reviewed the AA book down there. He gave us a wonderful plug. Foster Kennedy came and spoke on the medical attitude. He's seen a very hopeless gal, naughty man, recover one of his patients. I got up and talked about life among the anonymized. And the bankers, assembled 75 strong and in great wealth, sat at the table with the alcohol. Well, the bankers had come probably as a sort of a command performance, and they were a little suspicious that perhaps it was another prohibition deal. But they warmed up under the influence of the alcohol. Mr. Ryan, the hero of the heater episode, still sober. For example, at his table was asked by a distinguished banker, why, Mr. Ryan, uh, we presume that you are in the banking business. Mr. Ryan said, not at all, sir. I'm just out of Greystone Asylum. <laughs> well, that intrigued the bankers, and they were all warming up fine. <laughs> but unfortunately, Mr. Rockefeller couldn't get to the dinner. He was sick, actually quite sick that night. 
And he sent his son, a wonderful gent, not Nelson Rockefeller, in his place instead. And after the show was over, everybody was in fine form, and we were all ready again for the big touch. Nelson Rockefeller got up and speaking for his father said, My father sends word that he is so sorry he cannot be here. But so glad that so many of his friends can see the beginning of this great and wonderful thing. Something Nelson Rockefeller said that it affected his life more than almost anything that it cost him. A stupendous plug that was. Then he said, Nelson, but first, gentlemen, this is a work that proceeds on goodwill. It requires no money. <laughs> well, the two billion dollars got up and walked out. Well, that was a terrific letdown, but we weren't let down very long. Again, the hand of Providence has intervened. Right after the dinner, Mr. Rockefeller asked that the talks be published in the pamphlet. He approached the rather defunct work publishing company and said he would like to buy 400 books to send to all of the bankers who come to the dinner and all who had not. Well, seeing that this was for a good purpose, we let him have the books cheap. He bought them cheaper than anybody had since. We sold 400 books to John D. Rockefeller Jr. for one buck fee to send his banker friends. So, he sent out the book, the pamphlet, and with it he wrote a personal letter and signed every doggone one. And in this letter he again recited how glad he was that his friend had been able to see this great beginning, how what he thought would be a wonderful thing, how deeply it had affected him. And then he said, but fortunately, gentlemen, this is a work of good will. It leaves little, if any, money, perhaps a slight amount of temporary help. I, said John D. Rockefeller, am giving these good people $1,000. So the bankers all received Mr. Rockefeller's letter, and they all tied it up on the cuff. Well, John D. is giving $1,000. Me, with only a few millions, I should send these boys about 10 bucks. Of this. One who had an alcoholic relative in tow said it's been as high as $300. So with Mr. Rockefeller's $1,000, plus the solicitation of all the rest of these bankers, we got together the princely sum of $3,000, which was the first outside contribution to the Alcoholic Foundation. And that $3,000 was divided equally between Smithy and me so that we could keep going somehow. And we solicited that dinner list for five years and got about $3,000 a year out of it for five years. And at the end of that time, we were able to say to Mr. Rockefeller, we don't need any more money. The book income is helping to support our office. The groups are contributing to fill in. The royalties 
are taking care of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. We don't need any more money. Now you see Mr. Rockefeller's decision not to give us money saved his society. He gave of himself. He gave of himself at a time when he was under public ridicule for his views about alcohol. He said to the whole world, this is good. The story went out on the wires, all over the world. People ran into the bookstores to get the new book, and boy, we really began to get some book orders. An awful lot of inquiries came into the little office there at Z Street. The book money began to pay ranches. We hired one more help. There was Ruthie, another gal, and me. And then comes Jack Alexander with a terrific article in the Saturday Post. Then came an immense flood of inquiries, six or seven thousand of them, and Alcoholics Anonymous had become a national institution. Doctor's story of preparation book Alcoholics Anonymous and of its subsequent effect, you all have some notion. The proceeds of that book have repeatedly saved the office in New York. But it isn't the money that has come out of it that has mattered. It is the message that it carries out, that is transcendent the mouth and the sea, and is even at this moment lighting candles in dark caverns and on distant beaches.